So when we think about high density living and getting high density living right, what we need to think about is the quality of the properties that people are living in, so the design and build quality, and also the mix of people who are living there um, and how that can be best uh, managed and facilitated. Hi, I'm Dallas Rogers and you're listening to the Conversation Speaking With podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. Australia's population is putting an enormous pressure on the housing market within the major cities. As the population increases, cities like Sydney and Melbourne are pushing outwards towards the urban fringe. The attraction of living in the suburbs has created urban sprawl in Australia to the point where cities are literally merging into one another. Rapid development around Melbourne's fringes has left successive governments struggling to ease massive pressure on existing roads and railway stations. The sprawling urban landscapes are putting pressure on our infrastructure and governments are increasingly being called upon to support new developments and to release more land. One strategy for addressing urban sprawl is to build up instead of building out. To meet the growing demand for housing, there has been a rapid growth in the number of high-density houses being built in our major cities. The inner-city apartment block is replacing the old quarter-acre block. The Victorian capital gained twice as many residents as Sydney last year. The population growth report also found more Australians are ditching the big backyard for inner-city living. Higher density housing has a number of advantages. It increases housing supply without requiring large tracts of land or expensive new infrastructure. And people living in higher density housing also benefit from being closer to work, transport, family and friends. But high density living also introduces new challenges. Noisy neighbours, smaller apartment areas and more shared spaces. So I spoke with Hazel Easthope about the growing trend towards urban consolidation and the benefits and challenges that come with high-density living. Governments are under a lot of pressure to provide more housing because we have a growing population and especially in our big cities like Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane and Perth in particular there is a lot of pressure for more housing just to house the numbers of people who are already living in the cities and moving into them. Governments in the five Major cities around Australia have all promoted urban consolidation, which basically means building up rather than building out. So building apartments and attached properties uh, to try and house more people. And because of the changes that have trickled down into the planning regulations, it's been possible to build more apartments in cities and people have bought into them and moved into them. Building up rather than building out brings people closer to already existing infrastructure. And this can save governments and developers a considerable amount of development costs. But as cities grow, they need new types of infrastructure to cope with changing population profiles. If you live relatively close to a major city, you may have noticed that it's getting harder to jump on a bus, train or tram these days. As the density of our cities increases, Hazel Easthope says it's vital that our infrastructure is upgraded to meet the growing demand. Most of the cities around Australia, they've grown through uh, suburban expansion for a very long time. And really it's, it's not all that feasible to keep on 
building out without very vastly improving infrastructure and particularly transport infrastructure. If you're going to build new properties by building them as detached houses on the suburban fringe, then you're going to have to be building new roads, new train lines, providing more bus services, putting down new sewerage lines. And all of that gets quite expensive, whereas if you can use the infrastructure that's already in place, there's significant cost savings to government in doing that, and also potential cost savings for developers who might be pressured to provide that kind of infrastructure. There's a problem with that though. Sometimes the savings on infrastructure are so great that the infrastructure can't keep up with the increased house build. So if you're building a 10-storey apartment where there used to be two houses, then you're going to need to improve your sewerage systems at some point and you may need to put another bus on. Whether adequate infrastructure is provided will go a long way in determining whether high-density living is sustainable for the people living in these dwellings as well as for the local environment. But infrastructure is one of many factors that needs to be considered in creating sustainable high-density living environments. Whether the shift to compact city living is sustainable or not I think really is going to depend on how it's done. I don't think that it's necessarily going to be sustainable or unsustainable to live in a higher density city in the Australian context. I think that it's going to depend on the quality of the buildings, on the quality of the design, on whether people are actually informed and understand their ownership rights and responsibilities in those properties, on whether the infrastructure is upgraded sufficiently to accommodate increasing numbers of people. So it's not density that has an impact necessarily on outcomes, it's, it's more to do with design, so it's more to do with the built environment and also social mix, so the interactions of people who are living in that environment rather than whether, whether there's 10 people or 20 people or 50 people you know, in a particular area. You might have a building that has poor sound insulation. It's a walk-up, it's quite old, but it's quite cheap to maintain. And that building might function very well for a group of people in their uh, 40s who don't have children, who don't have pets, who are trying to save money. They all have the same kind of timeframes in their day, right? So that could work quite well. So that's an example of a poor built form working fine with a particular social mix. You take that same building, you throw into that someone who owns a small dog that barks when they leave in the morning, somebody who has their grandchildren come to stay on a Saturday morning and they're running up and down above somebody else who works shifts, and you've got a completely different dynamic. So you can see it's not design or built form on its own that's the issue, it's how they relate to each other. As I've said on numerous occasions, we have to increase the supply of housing in Australia. A lot of the pressure for governments to promote urban consolidation is about providing more properties for people to live in, but it's really important that it's not just a numbers game. So the properties that people are going to live in are going to be their homes, whether they're renting them or their owner-occupiers. So they need to be provided with consideration given to design, to build quality, to the interactions between um, residents who are living in closer proximity to each other.
The challenges of more people living closer together, the most obvious one is that they are in closer proximity to each other and therefore they're more likely to annoy each other. So things like disputes over noise can become quite uncomfortable between neighbours or quite serious between neighbours and that's one of the other reasons why design and build quality is so important. So things like the building um, and development and, and architectural practices have got much better at this but things like not putting a neighbouring bathroom next to the neighbour's bedroom is quite important. Having good sound insulation between units so that you can't hear your, your neighbour's private moments or you, you, know, you can't hear them going to the toilet, you can't hear them watching their favourite sitcom at 11 o'clock at night. Smell is a big issue, particularly cooking smells and smoking. And on the smoking issue, something which I found quite interesting is the move in strata title buildings to ban smoking in common areas and also to ban smoking throughout the building and the types of issues that that can raise about, well, this is my private property, I can do what I want in it, but in fact you can't if what you're doing is affecting the amenity of other people's properties. Strata properties are properties that have been divided into portions or lots, such as units and apartments and strata titles were first introduced in 1961 to handle the legal ownership of these portions of a building or structure. While homeowners think they understand their property rights, the laws and regulations that apply to strata properties are actually different to those that apply to attached homes. And this can lead to misunderstandings and problems. One of the issues that I really think we need to grapple with in Australia is the fact that strata was introduced as a way to allow people individual property ownership in the sky, in effect, horizontal property ownership. And it's been promoted and sold as that for since it was introduced in the 60s. But in fact, it's not just that, because it's also joint ownership in everything else and that that brings with it some benefits. It's joint responsibility and joint payment for maintenance of all of that, but it also brings with it quite a lot of constraints over what you can do. And those constraints are at odds with Australian ideas about individual property ownership and at odds with what Strata's been sold as. It's been sold as an extension of those types of property ownership, but in reality and in legality, it's not that. First call then. Once again, first. Second, third, and final time. Sold, well bought. Congratulations. Congratulations. Everyone who owns a property in Strata owns two things. They own individual rights to their own property, which is generally the airspace inside their unit and their fixtures and fittings and, and their internal walls. And they also own a joint share in everything else, which is the building and the grounds. So what that means is that um, often the property rights that people feel that they should have and in fact that they do have to some extent in their private property about what they can do so the type of noise they can make or whether they can smoke or you know what they can do when they're coming and going they can be constrained by the needs of all of the other people who are living with them and who own property with them so you can't for example make a change to your outside wall or your balcony in a strata property without getting permission from all the other owners the owners corporation because some people live in close proximity and effectively share some property rights, this can lead to conflict amongst residents. These situations can be stressful for those involved and can have an adverse effect on their health. There are other health impacts too, both positive and negative. 
but Hazel Easthope says that whether high density properties are actually better or worse for health really comes down to who's living there. The health impacts of density are difficult because it's hard to know whether the health impacts are to do with who's living there or with the design. So there have been attempts in the past to review literature on density and, and how it impacts on people and some of them have found that people who live in high density are less healthy and some of them have found that they're more healthy and in fact oftentimes that's because they're different populations. So it's not the density, it's the people who are living in those properties and also the design of those properties. There are obviously implications around stress. So stress can be the cause of many different things, but if you're in a high density living situation, you might be stressed by your neighbours. They, they may be noisy, they may be making smells, cigarette smells for example, cigarette smoke, which may be causing you health problems. Perhaps even more seriously, you may have disputes with neighbours. They can have a great impact on, on mental health and well-being, on whether you feel that you can sit in common areas, for example, if there's somebody in the building that you really don't get along with or who's been harassing you, that can be a problem. On the other hand, in a building that's working quite well, you can have the opposite. So you could have very positive social relations with your neighbours and that could be very beneficial to your health. Or you could have situations where, for example, you have better access to facilities that you might not be able to afford to have in your own private house. There's been quite a bit in the media recently about how people who catch public transport actually have a lot more incidental exercise. And one of the reasons that high density development is promoted, and in Australia it's normally promoted along transport corridors, so things like train lines. What makes that more complicated is the fact that just because someone lives in an apartment near a train station doesn't actually mean that they're more likely to catch the train. And in fact, whether people are more or less likely to catch public transport has more to do with wealth. So wealthy people who live in apartments near train lines may in fact not catch the train if it doesn't suit their lifestyle. Whether the shared spaces and facilities are used by residents will depend a lot on the design. Good design can influence positive health outcomes, create a more sustainable living environment, and it can reduce the overall environmental footprint of high density properties. While some states and territories have good design guidelines, Hazel Easthope warns that high density does not always equate to higher environmental sustainability. Whether apartments are more energy and water efficient or not really depends on their density. So the evidence that I'm aware of suggests that high density, so um, apartment blocks, are actually the least sustainable when you look at high, medium and low density properties. And the reason for that is that Larger apartment blocks often have a lot of energy and water use in the common areas. So if you think of things like having a lobby, having lights on in corridors, having lifts which are running, pumping hot water up floors, and also uh, water use in, in things like swimming pools and those kinds of facilities. It's also more difficult in high density building to identify leaks and to make cost savings or energy and water savings in those buildings. So if, if you actually want to build more environmentally sustainable buildings and you want to pick a density, you're better off picking a walk-up flats or, or townhouses because they're much more efficient and in fact 
high-rise apartments are less efficient than detached houses as they're built at the moment. It doesn't mean that there's not room for improvement and there's quite a lot of work going on to try and improve the water and electricity efficiency of apartment buildings at the moment. Thank you for listening to this Speaking With podcast. Just a reminder, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or through TuneIn Radio. And if you like this podcast or have ideas or suggestions for the Speaking With series, please leave us a review or comment through iTunes.